Open your Bibles to Romans 16, the final chapter in a long journey through this great book, and one of the most unique passages of Scripture you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. It's unique because it's basically an extended section of greetings. And you have greetings at the end of letters, of Paul's letters and other letters throughout the New Testament, a few verses here and there, but nothing as extensive as what you find here in Romans 16. And what this passage gives us is really a unique insight, you might say, into the sense of dependency that men like the Apostle Paul had on so many other people who served alongside of him in ministry. He mentions so many of them here, and of course we know of others from different places in the New Testament which are also mentioned. But here you have basically a catalog of of co-laborers and fellow workers in the gospel, a people that Paul mentions with various commendations and descriptions and reflections of his tender love for them and his appreciation straight from the heart of this uh, venerable worker. And it gives us, as I said, special insight, not only into Paul's ministry, but really into the nature of the first church, the early church, the first century church. It helps us to understand I think some of the reasons why the church was used so powerfully in the first century the way that it was throughout the entire Roman Empire. It wasn't only because of, we might say, the powerful preaching of the apostles and the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers. It had as much to do with the kinds of labors that Paul mentions throughout this list of gospel workers. And yet we recognize that this side of heaven... So many of them will not be known to us, maybe beyond just this brief description. Many of the workers, their only legacy is these few words that have been recorded here on the pages of Scripture. Some, some sort of epitaph or some sort of caption of the character of their life and ministry, along with, we might say, a cross-section of the early church a cross-section of a faithful group of people who were sort of the engine behind gospel ministry. It's fascinating, really, what you have here. 26 individuals who are spoken about. A number of them were slaves. Several of them were women. Some of them were wealthy. Several were not. And they served in different capacities and were known for different contributions that they made to the overall project, you might say, of the gospel, and yet the Lord used it all, as He so beautifully does in any church body, He used it all for the sake of His glory and name. And it serves for us as a reminder that God's choice servants are often the ones whom you never see and the ones you never really hear about. It's their labors and their efforts that keep the wheels of the gospel moving, And even the ones who serve behind the front lines, the very front lines, often unknown, who are vital to the the warfare, you might say, that's taking place in the hearts and minds of many who are receiving Christ. You hear something here of the importance of these people to the Apostle Paul and their importance to the Roman church as he gives these comments and these commendations. And as we read through it, I can't help but wonder, what would the commendation be for you? 
If the Apostle Paul was to write a letter to Faith Community Church, what would be his caption of the character of your life and your ministry? What would he say about you? What kind of legacy are you building? What kind of reputation are you going to leave behind? If someone were to write just a brief statement about the way that you serve and the impact that you've had. Well, these Christian brothers, these dear Christian workers who have been immortalized in a list of greetings and, I might add, inspired and given down to us by God Himself, they, they give to us a, a sort of a number of noble characteristics to which we ought to strive in our own ministry. And I could only imagine that if we had a church full of people like this, how powerfully the Lord would be pleased to use our church or any church for the sake of of His kingdom. Let me just read the list to you and we'll go through it as best we can this morning. Just looking at the first 16 verses, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, and when you that you may welcome her in the Lord and in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They're well known to the apostles, and they, are, they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apollos, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus and Phlegon and Hermes and Patrobus and Hermas and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nerus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. It's a long list and a number of different names and we, we look at it and we listen to all these commendations and as I said, I think just paying attention to what the Spirit has given to us here, we can we can identify a number of kinds of workers who made up this dynamic early church. The first one that Paul mentions in verses 1 and 2, we might say is a faithful deaconess. A faithful deaconess. Phoebe is her name. And I know that for some of you it might strike you as strange to have a female described as a deacon or to call someone a deaconess, but I believe that's the best way to understand the role that Phoebe has here. He says that he commends her, a servant 
a diakonon of the church. That word servant is used, of course, generically for Christian workers and even for non-Christians who are serving in various capacities. It's used even within the church, both of official uh, positions or official offices and also those that are unofficial. So there's always some level of debate whenever the word is encountered in the New Testament because Primarily, scholars believe that these offices didn't develop until well uh, after the apostolic period or very late even in the apostolic period. The uh, offices of both deacon and elder, they say, came about very late. But it's plain as you read the rest of the New Testament that they were well known by the time of Paul's writing, at least of the book of Philippians, which would have been in his Uh, time of uh, imprisonment in the the final year, 59, 60, 61 AD, he he greets the church there with its elders and deacons. So it was at least well formulated enough. And of course, we know from Paul's very first missionary journey, he was going around and appointing elders in every church. But more plainly, when you get to the letter of 1 Timothy, which was written about seven or eight years after Uh, Romans, these offices had clearly been established and understood in the early church. And I want you to turn with me there, if you have just a moment, to 1 Timothy chapter 3 to see the way that Paul discusses these official positions in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Paul discusses the necessary qualifications for what he calls an overseer, sometimes translated bishop, but it's basically the word episkopos, which is one and the same. It's a synonym with an elder in the New Testament. So the first seven verses of 1 Timothy 3 talk about that. And then in verses 8 and 9 and 10, he discusses the qualifications of deacons, which are very similar in terms of their overall quality of life. But then when you come to verse 11 of that chapter... He discusses the qualifications of the women. The word is simply gunaikas, and it is sometimes translated wives. It can mean that in certain contexts, but its basic meaning is the word woman. And there's no compelling reason in this context to take it any other way. No compelling reason to take it as wives, particularly coming after the qualifications of deacons, it might give the impression that these are uh, are qualifications of the wives of deacons, that they're to be held to a particular standard. But that would be strange if Paul would set such a high standard for the wife of deacons when he never even mentions the wife of elders, the wife of overseers. And so you would think that if he's giving this qualifications list and the wives are included, he would include the wives of both. You'll notice, however, in verse 11, he begins this list, the wives, and he uses the word likewise. Same word he uses in verse 8 when he's talking about the deacons. In like manner to the elders, the deacons have certain qualifications. And when you come to verse 11, in like manner, the women, probably a reference to, we might say, female deacons. People struggle with that whole idea of a female deacon because just a few verses earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul had strictly forbidden women to teach or have authority 
over men in the church. And so there's a conflict in their minds, particularly those who have, you might say, raised in a Baptist tradition where deacons operate in a, a sort of authoritative board of directors fashion over the church. You generally have deacon-led churches in the Baptist tradition. But if you're one of those who struggle with this idea of female de- deacons, the, the conflict really is more in your understanding of what a deacon does than in whether or not they are male or female, because the Bible doesn't really present deacons or deaconesses as decision makers, as some authoritative body within the church. They aren't running the church. They aren't making key decisions for the church. They're not over the church. Deacons are simply servants. They just serve. They are entrusted with high levels of responsibility. They carry out those responsibilities. It may be involving uh, the handling of finances and money within the church. It may involve the care of those who are ill and looking out for them. It could even involve projects of evangelism and administration. They're involved with these key kinds of even communication that takes place within the church. But all of those roles are just roles in service to whatever direction is being given by the elders or even the apostles, those who are leading in the church. We have deacons and we have deaconesses here at Faith Community Church. They never meet as a board. They never come together to make some grand decision. They never make those sort of collective calls, but they are always, always, always serving us in all kinds of ways. Out there, doing the work that is so important, the vital things that take the load, if you will, off of the elders so that the work of the teaching and preaching the Lord's entrusted to us can go on. Well, when you look back at a woman like Phoebe, this is exactly what you see. You see this kind of woman. She is called a diakonon tes ecclesiae. Excuse me, I was trying to spit that out. A deacon of the church. A servant of the church. And you can see how that has worked itself out in her life. She has been entrusted with a monumental responsibility here. An important task. She most likely is the one who is carrying the letter of Romans to the church in Rome. She's been entrusted with this. And Paul would have understood the importance of this ministry. He would have understood the importance of what was taking place. Like other New Testament writers, he probably had some grasp that what he is writing at this time was inspired literature. That it was something that was divinely given to him. He speaks about that even in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He was aware that he was receiving supernatural revelation from the Lord and imparting it to other people. And so he would have had some sense of the weightiness of this letter as he dispatched it to the church. And so he would have entrusted it to no one less than the most faithful of people. And he found that in this woman. To carry this book, to make sure that it is not lost, to understand the importance of its transmission to where its intended destination is. As someone said, Phoebe was entrusted to carry in her garments the very cornerstone of all Christian doctrine for all the ages. 
It's weighty stuff, weighty responsibility, but Paul knew that she was up to the task because he had observed the quality of her life, her faithfulness in service. He knew how she had served in the past. She was a deaconess or a servant of the church at Sincrea, which was directly south of Corinth. It was the most... uh, it was the closest uh, church in proximity to Corinth, and Paul would have been familiar uh, with her. She, in fact, probably was involved with carrying communication back and forth between the Corinth and the Sincrean church, one of the key representatives of that church. And here he is entrusting her with the biggest assignment she had ever been given in her life to carry a letter all the way across the Greek peninsula, across the Aegean Sea, and up to Rome. It would have been a dangerous journey. Travel in those days by land and by sea was treacherous with perils and robbers and all kinds of things. But Paul knew that he could trust this lady. He had seen the qualities in her life. And caused her to stand out above everyone else as worthy of that kind of trust. And so he writes to the church at Rome to welcome her. Welcome her in a manner worthy of the saints. Which probably meant on one hand, welcome her as much as you would any other worker in Christ. Any other worker in the Lord. Receive her with the same kind of love and concern. And on the other hand, receive her in the way that would be fitting for a church for a group of saints to behave and to receive somebody. This was critical in these early days when you had Christian workers traveling around because there were no safe places for them to lodge and stay. Any of the lodges or inns along the way were brothels at best. They were filthy both literally and, and uh, morally. And so Christian workers would not stay in them. They were dependent on the churches along the way to take them in and to house them. And so Paul's telling them, do this. Receive her in a manner worthy. And when these Christian workers went out, they were sent with letters of recommendation or letters of commendation. You see that, for example, in Acts 18.27, when the church at Ephesus sent uh, Apollos out, they sent him across to Achaia, encouraging him, and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. They gave him letters of commendation. Second Corinthians 3, Paul talks about some people who are in need of such letters of recommendation to the church at Corinth or from the church at Corinth, but he, on the other hand, was already known to them. He didn't need that, he said, like others do, but it was common because he's workers wouldn't have any other way of really being identified or recognized. There could be charlatans and people who are trying to take advantage, if you will, of the system. And so there were these uh, traditions of writing letters of recommendation. And Paul tells the church, I, I commend this lady to you. Receive her, welcome her, and help her. Meaning, give her all the lodging, all the food, all the help, all the escort that she needs, both in coming to you and sending her back on her way. Why? Because she has been a help, a, literally a patron. Means a financial benefactor. She had supported the work of the ministry for others and particularly for the Apostle Paul. And so he's asking them, do the same for her. Recognize your responsibility to invest in her. Well, Paul then moves from this faithful deaconess, secondly, in verses 3 and 4, to another 
uh, description of another set of, uh, of workers, we might call them the risk-taking workers or the risk-taking volunteers. Priscilla and Aquila, or as Paul calls them here, Prisca, that's her diminutive form, Prisca and Aquila. And this is how he, he essentially describes them as those who risked their necks for my life. You could say that characterized their ministry. They were out on the cutting edge of the Christian work. They were very important to the Apostle Paul and to his ministry and to the work of the gospel in general. In fact, they're mentioned six times throughout the New Testament, three times by Luke in the book of Acts and three times by the Apostle Paul. And the indications are that they were involved with his ministry and other ministries at vital areas. They were involved at Corinth. They were involved in Rome. They were finally involved in Ephesus. And they were an important couple in supporting and in sending and in helping not only those who are in ministry, but even developing men like Apollos or men like Timothy for the ministry. They first met Paul, you may remember, in In the city of Corinth, in Acts 18, they had been expelled from Rome by an edict from Claudius when he got rid of all the Jews from Rome. They were swept up in it. They were obviously Jewish people. And so like all of the Jews, they would have suffered great loss of their business and of their possessions, their home. But when they got to Corinth, the city of Corinth, they again set up their business of making tents. And they met Paul there and they gave him a job They even apparently let him stay in their home. They employed him, but then gave him the freedom to come and go as needed so that he could carry out the the ministry of the gospel in Corinth. These are people who truly understood that the business they had had been given to them by the Lord and for the Lord, for His purposes, as a vehicle of gospel ministry. And so while Paul was at Corinth, he started working with them, but then when financial support came from Macedonia by the hands of Timothy and Silas, we're told that he left the tent-making business to give himself completely to the work of the ministry, full attention to the ministry. And they apparently had no problem with that. They were flexible in that. They just continued to support, continued to give aid whenever and wherever they could because they understood their role. Now, as Paul's writing this book of Romans a few years later, they have apparently returned back to Rome with other Jews and the Lord has again blessed their business because if you'll see down in verse 5, Paul tells the Romans to greet them and the church that meets in their home. That's the way first century churches operated they met in the homes of wealthier members and so they've gone back and they've apparently reestablished themselves and either purchased or built another home and these homes would have been built in a way that could facilitate the gathering of this kind of church they were generally a series of rooms that were built around a very large courtyard in the middle and so a church could meet out in that courtyard In the early days of the church, when Christianity was not legal and churches had no property rights as an organization, this is what they were forced to do. When churches 
or I should say when Christianity began to be legalized or at least tolerated in some places, some of these wealthy families actually donated their homes to the church. And so the early church buildings that we have uncovered are all basically converted homes with these large wealthy members having contributed those homes to the church. So here are Aquila and Priscilla, who somewhere along the way, between their time in Corinth and their time in Rome, Paul says they had risked their own necks on his behalf. And we don't know the details. They, somewhere along the way, willingly and purposefully expose their themselves, we might say their home, their family, they expose themselves to danger for the sake of Paul and for the sake of the ministry. It may have been during his time in Corinth when the Jews were told united against him and tried to have him arrested and beaten. And perhaps they were the ones who at that point tried as Jews to intervene and plead for Paul's release. It would have put their own safety at risk, not to mention their business, their reputation and everything. But whatever it was, Paul remembered it. And he remembered how critical it was at that time. How they showed a tremendous amount of loyalty and a tremendous amount of love to him. They had prevented his life and his ministry from being cut short. 2 Timothy 4, as Paul writes his final book, he mentions them again. Apparently at this point they had already moved to Ephesus to come alongside of a young pastor named Timothy who was trying to establish himself and establish the work there. They obviously understood that they had been given this tent-making business as a means to help those who were laboring in gospel ministry, whether it meant giving them employment when they needed it or whether it meant using their resources, using their home, putting their own safety and security at risk. This couple was willing to take on all of that for the sake of the glory of God. Because, as someone once said, sometimes you have to go out on a limb if you expect to find any fruit. They understood that. They, they weren't going to play it safe with their life. They weren't going to play it safe with their business. They weren't going to play it safe with any of that. They were always out there on the cutting edge. They understood if they really wanted to be fruitful in the end, if they wanted to have a legacy of fruitfulness in their life, they were going to have to take some chances. They were going to have to do what it took to advance the gospel and the preachers of the gospel. They were going to have to do that, and yet when we find at the end of their life, what we find is they were incredibly fruitful. Their their reach, you might say, far extended their grasp, Because of how they had so invested in so many ministries and so many faithful men. You'll notice in verse 4, Paul says, Not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Probably in their lifetime, they had no idea of the full breadth of the touch of their ministry. They would have impacted literally every church of the Gentiles because Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles. 
And in first giving employment to him for a season and then in supporting him and even at one point putting their own lives at risk for him, they had indebted themselves or the churches of the Gentiles, I should say, are now indebted to them. Literally, they had a claim on the fruit of all of these churches. That's an amazing legacy. An amazing legacy of gospel workers who understand the need to sometimes not always play it safe, but to invest yourself in the work. Well, it doesn't end there. The legacy of these workers doesn't end there because Paul goes on to mention another that we might just simply call a pioneering convert, Eponidas, in verse 5. We don't know much about him. All we know is what Paul says here, that he was the first convert to Christ in Asia. He was the first one of what we might call modern-day Turkey. This was primarily the area where Paul did much of his work, so this would have been significant to him. In fact, he might have even been the one who led this man to Christ, and so he would have had a special place in his heart. I'll never forget going to Richmond, Virginia, preparing to go overseas to serve Christ in, in China, in Asia for two years. And I'll never forget going up there and getting off the bus and seeing Tommy Yeager. Tommy Yeager was a guy I had met once in my entire life, one time, when he shared the gospel with me as a lost sinner. The Lord used that event in my life to lead me to a saving knowledge of Christ. And I had no idea if I'd ever see this man again. What a sweet blessing it must have been to Tommy To see me now, five years down the road, the man that he had shared Christ with, getting ready to go and preach Christ in China. This must have been some of what Paul had in his own mind when he thinks about Eponidas, this early convert who is now serving the Lord, no longer in Asia, but now over in Rome. And he was a pioneer. He had done what the difficult thing was to do, which was to come to Christ when none of his co-workers, none of his family, none of his clan, none of his circle had done that. Paul understood the difficulty of that, being the first, being the first in your circle or the first in your family. He understood it would have required endurance and difficulty and steadfastness. He probably had already been ostracized by everyone who knew him and loved him, but he did. He accepted Christ, he followed Christ, and now years later, his legacy was known throughout the church. The Lord had honored that faithfulness. And then Paul introduces us to some of the hard-working women. The hard-working women. He mentions one in verse 6, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. And even down in verse 12, he writes, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa, Greet beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Those are all names of women. Mary and Tryphena and Tryphosa and Persis. And it just highlights the fact that of this list of 26 people who are given here, Paul mentions individually nine women. He had a tremendous respect for these ladies and for the contributions that they were making, the vital contributions to the advance of the gospel. Christianity, in fact, played a role itself in the, 
in the, 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 the security and you might say bringing dignity to women in general. They had within the Roman Empire limited rights and slave women virtually had no rights. But with the rise of Christianity, mothers and wives and women in general took on important roles, important status, not only within the church, but eventually even in society. They were recognized for their intelligence. They were encouraged to learn how to read so that they could study the Word of God, so that they could educate not only themselves, but their children. They were recognized within the body of Christ as being made in the image of God and having value for that. They were recognized as having received the Holy Spirit on par with everyone else. They were recognized as having been gifted by the Holy Spirit with unique capacities and unique ministries. They were important to the work, indispensable as a matter of fact. And these women that Paul mentions here were a part of that group. He simply, he simply talks about them as those who worked hard. It's interesting, he never says that about any of the men in the group. You women are not surprised. He reserves that only for the ladies. Particularly, it's ironic with Tryphena and Tryphosa because their names literally meant dainty and delicate. That's uh, sometimes the way that women are perceived. But no matter what their physical frame, whatever it was, these women had stamina. They had fortitude. They had strength. And they worked hard. I was so grateful for the ladies this week who worked hard for our Young Marrieds Conference. They showed up on Thursday and spent all day setting up making a wonderful environment and then showed up again on Saturday and served us on Friday night and served us so that we could have just a few moments to sit under the teaching of God's Word. Far more hours of labor than many people even realize. But this is not peripheral to the gospel mission. Their tireless labor, much of it, was what facilitated the teaching and discipleship of the early church. And Paul wants them to be remembered for that. And then he mentions in verse 7 what we might call a high-profile couple. He says, Greet Andronicus, or excuse me, Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners. They're well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Probably a, a husband and wife Team. There's been some debate about whether Junia was a man or a woman, but it was understood for the first 1,300 years of the church to be a woman. It was a common woman's name. For about 500 years, people began to think it might be a man, but more recently, most folks are convinced that this is a husband and wife. And Paul commends them here. He commends them and he says that they were well known to the apostles. Certain groups have tried to construe this as if they were well known as apostles and here is the only mention of a female apostle but that's not the case at all he is talking about the esteem and the consideration by the other apostles for their service and for their faith and it's quite a commendation that among all the church out there among all the people out there he's able to say that among the apostles this is one of the choice people it was the case because 
partly they had come to know Christ so early. Paul says they were in Christ before me. Paul came to know Christ, it appears, in about 35 A.D. And so these two must have come to know Christ very soon after the, uh, the, the launch or the birth of the early church. They would have been among the very first Christians. They were probably ones who had been swept up, perhaps, in the persecution of the early church in A.D. 35, and they became active in preaching the gospel wherever they went. They earned a reputation for faithfulness, even to the point of suffering persecution, willing to suffer for the name of Christ, and as Paul says, becoming fellow prisoners with him. We don't know where, we don't know how, we don't know if they were in the same prison at the same time where he was, the same location, or if he's just saying, I recognize them as people who, like me, have suffered to that level, but whatever it was, he felt a special bond. This happens when you go through these kinds of fires together. You forge unique bonds that you never forget with people like this. And so he was grateful to call them his fellow prisoners, his fellow sufferers. And then he mentions, along with them, another group we might call men of lower status. In verses 8 and 9, he calls Ampliatus, my beloved brother, and Urbanus, our fellow worker, and my beloved Stachys. Again, we don't know much about these men, but the one thing we do know is they all have the names of slaves. They all have names that were common in history and archaeology as being among slaves. And slaves were never allowed to take the name of freed men because they would, would have possibly sullied the reputation of those citizens of Rome and those freedmen. So these men were either slaves or former slaves. And in fact, throughout this whole list, there are a, name, a number of slave names, Tryphena and Tryphosa and others. All of it just really speaks to the nature of the early church. And the whole nature of Rome in general, we're told between 15 and 30% of the city was made up of slaves at that point. And so it's not surprising that there would be within the church many, many slaves. In fact, the people in this list, there were probably at least 30% of them that were slaves. So you might say that the early church was disproportionately made up of those of the lower classes. And yet there was along with these prominent, well-known people like Andronicus and Junius, there was just as much genuine, real affection for them as everyone else. Because within the church, there were no social, economic barriers. There was neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for all were one in Christ. And then Paul mentions next a man that he says has proven character in verse 10. He says, greet Apollos who is approved in Christ. Or he is proven, you might say. The word is a word for testing, like testing metals and refining gold. And he uses it to describe this man who had proven himself in some difficulty, in some situation. You never know when it's going to arise. You never know when that moment's going to come. But you find yourself in that moment, at that time, and everything you have been taught and everything you've come to believe is put to the test. And you either stand or you compromise. You either stand and you fall. And this man stood the test. And the result of it was that he became known as one who's true to his faith, who's dependable, who's been proven, who's passed the test. We don't know what the situation was. 
But that one moment, that one season of his life became the defining thing for his life. And here he was now a constant encouragement, a constant inspiration to those who were around him. Paul then mentions another group. We might call them just people in places of influence. People in places of influence known more by the importance of the households to which they were connected than by their individual names. He says, Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Aristobulus was, of course, the well-known grandson of Herod the Great. And history tells us that when he died, all of his possessions and even all of his slaves were passed into the possession of the emperor Claudius. And so these may have been the remaining descendants, or they may have been the very slaves, we might say, of Aristobulus himself, who now lived with the emperor in his palace, on his grounds. They might have been those that Paul even mentions in Philippians chapter 4, who he says, of the household of Caesar, send their greetings to others. And because of their status and their connection, they would have been some of the chief clerks, some of the chief administrators within the Roman Empire. And Paul mentions one of them by name, Herodian, a man clearly who carries the name of Herod, who would have been really unknown of, uh, unknown outside of, uh, outside of Judea, but here he is in Rome. Paul calls him my kinsman. And then he mentions those who belong to the family of Narcissus, who was Again, a well-known servant and administrator for Emperor Claudius. He was in in charge of all of his correspondence all the way up until the year 54 when he was either uh, murdered, executed, we should say, or committed suicide. This would have been right around the time that Paul was writing this letter. But these would have been believers who were part of his family. And maybe Paul doesn't mention them by name because he, he understands that to do that in a letter that could be intercepted would have put them in undue risk. But he wanted to greet these people knowing that they were in places of influence and knowing they had shown their faithfulness already. And you begin to understand how the Lord had put together the early church. These people risking their own safety coming to the Lord and no doubt using their positions for the sake of the kingdom. And then next, he mentions a family who, he say, who we might say bears the burdens of others. A family who bears the burdens of others. This is probably the best way to summarize Rufus and his mother. Rufus, he says, chosen in the Lord, also his mother who's been a mother to me. Most scholars believe this refers to Rufus, the son of Simon of Cyrene, who in Mark 15.21 is named as the man who is conscripted from the passers-by. He's conscripted by the Roman soldiers when Christ was too weak to carry His cross any further. They laid it on the back of Simon and caused him to carry it all the way to Golgotha. We're told that he was there in Jerusalem with his two sons, Rufus, and Alexander. And church history tells us that he became a believer. Simon did. Apparently, his contact with Christ in that up close and personal way on his journey to Calvary changed his life. He saw the sacrifice and the love of the Savior in a unique way. 
And because of this, he would have been, no doubt, one of the more celebrated men throughout the early church, having the privilege of having carried the cross for the Savior. At this point, his family had apparently moved to Rome, and he was either deceased or was out. Mark, when he writes his gospel, he writes from Rome. He's the only one who mentions these people. He mentions them all by name, Simon and Alexander and Rufus, no doubt because they would have been known and recognized by everybody. But Paul doesn't mention him here, probably because I said he, he had passed away. His son, maybe even Alexander, had passed away. But he does mention Rufus, who was choice, no doubt because of his service. He had he'd been discipled, he'd been trained. He served, you might say, in the legacy of his dad. But more importantly, he mentions the mother of Rufus, the wife of Simon, who had been, Paul says, like a mother to me. In some way, she had demonstrated the care and the concern towards Paul, which he says was like a mother, who, as we all well know, is the first on the scene when there's trouble, right? When there's heartache and when there's grief and there's pain, mothers are the first ones there. And she had been there, no doubt, at some point and demonstrated this kind of care and concern for Paul and probably for others as well with all the affection and all the care of a, a true mother. And whereas her husband had become well known for his famous act of bearing the burden of the cross, this woman built her reputation over time. Not just bearing one burden, but bearing many, again and again and again. Taking up the cross of those who are in need. And being a mother beyond her own boundaries, her own children. And then finally, Paul mentions to us the church planters, we might say, of Rome. Or the pastors of the churches spread throughout Rome. That's the impression you get in verses 14 and 15 when he mentions the brothers, Asyncritus and Phlegon and Hermes and Patrobos and Hermas. Or verse 15 when he mentions the saints who are with Philologus and Julia and Nerus and his sister and Olympus. That's apparently a family all together. And when you add up all those names, and in verse 14, the brothers who are with these men, or in verse 15, the saints who are with Philologus. When you add up all of those names in the church, even back who met at the home of Priscilla and Aquila, you may very well have the names of the leadership of the seven churches that were located on the seven hills of Rome. History tells us that that's the way the early church of Rome was set up. Seven churches on the seven hills. Paul surveys all of these faithful workers from all the categories of race and gender and social standing, all the roles that they had. And he's just overwhelmed at how the gospel makes his progress. Hard-working women, risk-taking, entrepreneurial business people, those who are willing to make the kind of sacrifices and do the kind of work, those who had earned reputations in a moment of trial, and those who earned reputations through steadfast faithfulness over years. 
This is the church. This is the gospel in its progress. And he sees them all and he says, greet them. Greet them all with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ, that is all the ones that Paul would have had contact with, send their greetings. This holy kiss, a kiss on the cheek, it was normally something that passed only between family members. But so many of these people would have lost family. So many of these people would have been ostracized, abandoned because of their faith. And so the early church began to use this as an expression of love between one another as spiritual family. It fell out of use as a cultural expression, but that kind of mutual love is still the mark of a genuine spirit-filled people, knit together in love, knit together in labor for the sake of the gospel. May Faith Community Church be that kind of a church. I'm so blessed to see it, to see it on display. So many people building a legacy as workers of Christ. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we are grateful for this glimpse at this legacy of people. I do pray that you would give our church just such kinds of people. That when an epitaph is written and when a caption is laid down, that there will be something to say of their life, something to say of their faithfulness, something to say of how they put everything on the line, something to say of their generosity, something to say of their heroism and courage, something to say of their witness. It will be said not only by their remembrance, it will be said by the fruit of their labors. It will go so far and wide. And we pray, Father, it would be abundant that you be pleased to use us for the sake of your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.